This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willer's getting booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. That's a little short. Yeah, you can be late for school there. What's your homework done? Good afternoon. It is 3.08. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, everybody's here. Uh, and we got a jam-packed show. First day of school. Back to class. And uh, interesting, as you're driving around, you see subtle signs, whether it's, um, you know, bed sheets hanging from overpasses or whatever. <laughs> you see you see subtle signs that, uh, oh, yeah, they're back. And uh, it was interesting, my uh, my daughter, who's uh, back as well, and my son, my daughter, who's in university, though, uh, I was asking her just this morning, is it a different vibe? Because she goes, yeah, oh, yeah, it's way different this year than it was the last two. So uh, thank goodness that things are, you know, for the most part, back to normal or whatever the new normal is or whatever the heck you want to call this now. But uh, great to see that the kids are back to school. Uh, also, um, you know, lots of change, lots of stuff going on simply because this is the first time in a long time that we've gone back to class and there really hasn't been a a, a major protocol of some sort or or major obstacles uh, getting in our way, which, you know, obviously that's what we had to do to get through uh, the global pandemic over the last two and a half years. So a lot of that's out of the way, and it's it's a completely different feeling. And it was interesting, my wife was saying, um, for some people she's talked to, Labor Day is more of the beginning of a new year than New Year's is, like January 1, because it seems that everybody uh, just sort of gets into that next sort of phase and kicks into gear, the kids go back, and, uh, you know, summer's over. And, man, it was just too short, wasn't it? Uh, all right, uh, enough of that. We'll continue on. And I want to play you some clips. And, you know, obviously there's lots of chatter. Well, there isn't really much chatter at all because there's not really much chatter about COVID-19 anymore uh, because most of us have had it and moved on and are uh, either, you know, naturally immune or have, have got our boosters and vaccines, hopefully, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but uh, there's still a lot that all are, are, are calling for for protocol for a place we're just not at anymore. I mean, we're just not there. I mean, if it changes and there's another deadly variant that comes out, uh, then obviously we'll have to switch gears. But that's just not the case and hasn't been the case since the Delta variant. Uh, but nonetheless, there's lots out there that are still concerned. Here's a clip from uh, Matt Cardi of Global News. Every single parent in this province wants a normal school year. But it's going to take a whole lot more than some wishful thinking from this government. NDP education critic Merritt Stiles took aim at the Ford government, accusing them of not doing anything to protect children as they head back to class. And unlike previous school years, there are no COVID health measures in place. But Health Minister Sylvia Jones says it is safe for kids to be in school. We want to make sure 
that children in the province of Ontario are safely able to do what they want to do in school, participate in extracurricular, make sure that they have that opportunity to, to join with their peers and connect with their teachers. Education Minister Stephen Lecce also adding his two cents. Speaker, this school year is going to be more normal, it's going to be more stable, and it's going to be much more enjoyable. Matt Carty, Global News. Thank goodness. Uh, by the way, Education Minister Stephen Lecce will be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about uh, the first day back. And again, you know, I, I understand concern, but we are in a completely different place than some of the hysterical people that are getting upset uh, this post-Labor Day. Uh, we are, the vast majority of us are vaccinated. Uh, the latest variant is much, 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 much less deadly. Well, it isn't deadly. Um, than what Delta was. Omicron's, it's a different ball game. So, you know, it's odd why we stand up and, and, you know, and again, I understand concern, but we're in a much different place than we were in 2020 or 2021, for that matter, uh, in in a much different place. So, uh, yeah, cases are, are up because it spreads a lot more and more people have had it. But you don't close down everything or or make people mask up because there's a cold going around or there's a flu going around. And again, uh, when we are where we are with vaccination rates and such, uh, it, it's pretty easy to see uh, why most, the majority, have uh, have tried to move on. All right. Uh, when you get a town like Hamilton or any sort of similar a city that has a university in it, it uh, it changes drastically post Labor Day, and um, you know the parties and they're thinking that Frosh Week is going to be a little bit bigger this uh, uh, this time out, considering what's been happening over the last two years and kids have kind of stayed away. Well, it's different. Well, I guess we need a nuisance bylaw, says City Planner Ben Spicha. The proposed nuisance party bylaw provides additional enforcement tools in response to these unsanctioned gatherings benefiting municipal law enforcement officers and police officers alike in their duties, allowing them to disperse nuisance parties and minimize the negative behaviors associated with them. Furthermore, it allows municipal bylaw officers to charge those who hold these unsanctioned events accountable. The overall goal of this initiative is to minimize the negative behaviors associated with nuisance parties, stop and deter public nuisances, and hold those who continue to participate accountable. And generally just try to keep the kids out of the trees and off of the lampposts, I guess, is, is the... But, you know, it, 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 it's... I, and I, as I said to you earlier on, uh, talking to my daughter uh, this morning, and uh, it's a definitely, definitely a little bit more of a free-flow vibe uh, at university. So uh, even with nuisance bylaws, and, you know, obviously if you're a resident, you need these sorts of things. Uh, but uh, I would suspect it would be a little bit of a rambunctious... Uh, September, since it's just been two and a half years that everyone, including university uh, kids, have been uh, have been locked up. Oh, by the way, the conservative leadership race. Yeah, it's been going on for like six months. I, I can't believe the interest in this. And um, and and yeah, at the end of the okay, well, September 10th, I guess it is. Uh, and now more than half of conservative voters in Canada want Pierre Polyev to lead uh, the conservative party, set, uh, suggest the new Ipsos poll for global. But not all Canadians feel the same uh, with Sheree, general, uh, the general population's uh, uh, favorite. Let's bring in Sean Simpson, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs, and with us now. Sean, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I'm, I am. Thank you. 
So, uh, obviously, Pierre Polyev are doing well within the Conservatives. We'll talk about that in a sec. But still, uh, the general population who are sort of in and out of this discussion, they seem to be more interested in Charest. What does that say here? Uh, well, it says that the party has a very difficult choice uh, ahead of them. Uh, they can uh, pick somebody who they're very excited about in, in Poiliev and, and uh, believe reflects their values and, and, and policy preferences. Uh, but if they do that, then they do so knowing that he's not very popular outside of the party. If their priority, therefore, is to um, get elected uh, in the next general election, Poiliev may not uh, on the face of it, uh, be the man to do it, at least uh, not right off the bat. And Jean Charest would be the better choice uh, in that instance. So uh, sort of <laughs> conservatives have to decide what's more important to them, it, you know, sticking to their principles and electing a leader that reflects uh, their preference in policy, or perhaps picking the more electable leader in Jean Charest. Um, do you think uh, Polyev's position would change during a campaign as opposed to what we're seeing during a leadership uh, campaign? Oh, I, I think uh, I think that's likely to happen. I, I suspect that we would see a little bit of the softer side of uh, of Pierre <laughs> in a general election, and this is not an abnormal thing uh, to happen. I mean, we even saw it a little bit with uh, Aaron O'Toole, uh, where uh, he was actually one of the more uh, right leaning candidates in the uh, in the the, the 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 Tory race last time around, uh, and then uh, once he became the leader of the party and during the general election really started to pivot more uh, to the center. So what gets you elected as leader uh, may not be the same thing as what gets you elected uh, in a general uh, a general uh, contest. Uh, and I, I think the leaders know that. Uh, Polyev, obviously a polarizing figure. Uh, are you surprised that the momentum has grown the way it has, whether it's the membership numbers or even the increasing uh, interest in younger voters? Yeah, a little bit surprised, actually, because we've now uh, asked these questions. This is the third time we've asked them in the last number of months. As you noted, this thing seems to be going on forever and ever. Um, and uh, we saw that uh, favorability ratings of uh, Pierre Poiliev uh, were down uh, in early July, which was the last time we asked this. Uh, and I was you know, perhaps uh, expecting the trend to continue and some other candidates as the race went on and people became more familiar with some of the other candidates that they would gain momentum. The exact opposite has happened as uh, people have perhaps become more familiar with the candidates along the way. Uh, conservative voters, anyway, uh, seem to be increasingly uh, backing uh, Monsieur Poiliev. So, um, a little bit opposite from from what I was expecting to see in our most recent data. Uh, can you see any major changes happening here? I mean, obviously, we've been talking about Pierre Polyev since the beginning of this campaign, and, you know, he did have the early lead, which has just grown throughout this campaign. Could you see something bizarre happening? And, you know, on September 11th or 12th, we're talking about the new leader, Jean Charest? <laughs> well, there's always the chance, you know, in these ranked ballots, uh, things aren't exactly clear. So when we asked um, uh, conservative voters, again, this isn't conservative members. These are general, you know, uh, people who right. asked who are you going to vote for the next election? And then they say conservative. We say, well, who, who would you support if you were able to, to, to vote? So there is something different between the membership uh, of the party and people yeah. who would just simply vote for the party. So that's the first thing I'll note. Um, the second is that when we asked 
these conservative voters who they would choose. It was 44 percent who, who, who chose uh, Pierre Poiliev. And that was up 10 points since July. But it's not yet a majority, which means that you know, there's if if this data reflects what the party membership is feeling, he may not win on on the first ballot, and then you know, screwy things can happen, <laughs> depending on how people have have ranked their their choices. I think it's highly unlikely that we would see um, anybody but Poliev at, at this point, but uh, I'm not going to bet my house on it. That's for sure. Uh, many uh, were attracted to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over the years, sunny ways, the selfies, modern guy, hip guy. How do you explain younger voters in the, in the attraction to Pierre Polyev? Well, younger voters have been uh, left out uh, and disenfranchised over the last number of years. They suffered uh, the most uh, economic hardship during COVID, mental health uh, challenges during COVID, uh, and they weren't getting feeling the love from uh, from the Liberal government. So they've changed. They've turned somewhere else, and and Mr. Poliev has. Um, been able to demonstrate or at least give the, the appearance that he's the one that cares about these people who have been uh, sort of uh, disenfranchised or feel that they're not being well represented in in Ottawa. Uh, and so I think that explains some of the appeal that he has. They're angry. Uh, he shows that he's angry and, and, and therefore some of that vote uh, ends up with uh, with him. Sean, Simps, uh, Sean Simpson with us, VP of Ipsos Public Affairs. More than half of conservative voters in Canada want Pierre Polyev to lead the uh, conservative party, suggests a new Ipsos poll, but not all Canadians feel the same. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Going to be an interesting week. Uh, be well. It's been my pleasure. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Many uh, said that uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine that it would be over uh, by the end of the week. And, of course, we are where we are uh, now to the point where uh, Russia, I guess it, it's it's sort of just uh, bogged down. And now Russia buying weapons from North Korea while Putin is attending the uh, joint military drill uh, drills head with uh, held with uh, China and other nations. Let's bring in Elliot Tepper, emeritus professor of political science, Carleton University. He's with us now. Elliot, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, thank you. Same to you, Scott. First day back to class. How does it make you feel on a day like today, <laughs> even though you're retired? Uh, it's, there's an excitement about September. No question about it. Very much so. Uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk about this latest. Anything new here? Why would Russia be using North Korea? Uh, and does North Korea have that much to sell? Yes, the press is putting this out in, in more than one way. Interestingly, they're saying, it's there because U.S. is declassifying intelligence to make it known. So that's how we know about it uh, and some of the detail about it. The fact that Russia is going to North Korea for purchasing weapons is being expressed primarily as, look, the sanctions are really hurting Russia. Their war plans, their original plans, as you pointed out, is going to be over in a week. That didn't happen. So they are simply being depleted of what they had, and they can't replace it because of Western sanctions on key components. So they are now going to, of all places, North Korea, which uh, has a, a great deal of uh, ammunition on hand and a lot of expertise in rockets. And that's been the kind of uh, general position in the media. Of course, there's another way to look at it. And we will be coming, I think, to, uh, to these military exercises, which are well worth commenting as well. Uh, also, 
is that Russia is finding a way to keep its armaments going despite the sanctions. So they are not isolated. They are not prevented from carrying on their war. They are finding a way out. North Korea is one avenue. There's other dimensions to this North Korea story. The North Koreans apparently are saying, once again, uh, contrary to UN resolutions in the Security Council, against sanctioning North Korea, remember they are heavily sanctioned, that you cannot be using your personnel. You can't send laborers abroad in mm. order to gain currency or to gain supplies. That's a violation of Security Council sanctions. Now, apparently, North Korea is saying, how would you like us to send our laborers to those two mm. independent, you know, little republic statelets that only North Korea and a few others have recognized in the Donbass? So there's a lot of wheels, uh, inside wheels here. Uh, again, does does North Korea have that much extra to be sparing? And is that initially from China? Huh. Wheels within wheels again. Uh, I would mm -hmm. raise it. The, the, the answer is we don't know how much they have. They have focused their economy entirely in terms of security and defense, as you and I have talked about. Uh, they're a, a backward little state, but they are genuinely a nuclear power because they see that as required, a requirement for their continued existence of the regime and the regime uh, continuation is the only real factor in their calculation. But you have to ask, what, are, what don't we know in terms of the Russian-North Korean relationship, and for that matter, the Chinese, which is always the big question. North Korea has acquired nuclear capability and rocket capability. Are they really doing that entirely on their own? So you get into that kind of security question when we talk about these states. What about these drills? Uh, we were talking about this uh, earlier on uh, last week and, and such. How significant uh, is this that these parties are, are organizing this way? Well, a little background on this. Uh, this is a continuation. Every four years, uh, this kind of exercise, military exercise, is carried on. Uh, the purpose this year in particular is that uh, Mr. Putin personally going there. And as you know, <laughs> Scott, he doesn't go anywhere much. He yeah. doesn't leave the confines of the Kremlin. And he keeps everybody far away from him inside the Kremlin. So the fact that he's gone there is to really put an exclamation point on Russia can carry on a war of aggression in Ukraine and still carry on normal operations. And that these are very important operations because uh, in addition to the purpose, the scale it's just so big. Uh, if you take a look at what they've said, it's 50,000 troops and it's going to be multiple uh, over seven different parts of the terrain. And it's these are very major uh, troop operation, military exercises. But what's interesting, Scott, a couple of things about it is that people who have been watching this are pointing out in the press now, if you dig down, yes, they're very large scale, but they're way, way back from what they used to be uh, just four years ago. Uh, they were uh, significantly bigger by, by several factors of scale. Hmm. And the uh, British military uh, Department of Defense, our equivalent of Department of Defense, has said even the figures we're seeing, which are a fraction of the announced figures of the previous exercises, it may be as low as only, oh, I don't know, something like 18,000 troops taking part. So I think the scale is uh, interesting. But Scott, look at the composition. And there's some intriguing things inside that. The, uh, it's not only uh, China taking part with Russia, 
we need to talk about that some more. But in addition to that, there's Belarus and Laos and wait, Venezuela is not there, but others are. So very interesting composition. To me, Scott, I, one of the fascinating aspects of this is China and India are both taking part and they have military personnel, personnel inside Russia on Russian territory. This is, uh, it, it's, it sounds like a solidifying of a different world or order. How does the U.S. and the West view this? Uh, I suspect with caution, uh, going back to India, for example, yes, they played the non-alignment card well. They are doing something extraordinary here, shoulder to shoulder with Chinese troops. China, keeping in mind, humiliated India in 1962 militarily and uh, recently killed a number of Indian troops in a place called Galwan. And there's, China has a, a claim on a swath of Indian territory, and yet they are there together. So I think, I think the West is looking at that and saying, where's India? But then India at the same time then deals with the West as well. Uh, so they're playing that well. Uh, India and China are both saving economically the Russian economy by purchasing at a discount, Scott, a lot of the oil and uh, yeah. gas supplies coming out. Uh, the, the West um, will keep an eye on this. And my guess is they're also going to actually evaluate the military and uh, strategic and tactical aspects of this military exercise. Uh, does Putin need, and we've only got about a minute left now, does Putin need a way out of Ukraine or can he just uh, let this just go on, drag on and, and burn itself out? Does he need an out here? I think he needs an out, but does he feel he needs an out? Going to Iran to purchase drones, North Korea to purchase weapons, uh, and all the stories we're getting about emptying out prisons and the Wagner group of mercenaries being used, all of that suggests that he has no interest in getting out, that he has an interest in going around the world and gathering in any way he can the material necessary to continue his illegal aggression against Ukraine. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University, Russia, buying weapons from North Korea, uh, as well as joint military drills between China, India, and Russia. Elliot, as always, thank you for the time. Be well. Thank you. Same to you, Scott. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, it's uh, always interest driving, uh, interesting driving through town and seeing bed sheets hanging from things and whatever, and you realize, hey, uh, university's back, kids are back to class uh, on all different levels. And, uh, you know, with two and a half years of the kids being pent up, I, I, I think we're going to expect uh, a, a little bit more this year, uh, just simply because it's been a couple of years since the kids have, have got together this way. And uh, so maybe it's good timing for this. Uh, the city of Hamilton is looking to implement a nuisance party bylaw targeting large unsanctioned parties, including fake homecomings that have seen thousands descend on the streets uh, around Westdale and McMaster University. And we've all seen that. Uh, what will this do? What is it different? What is different with this bylaw? Let's bring in Maureen Wilson, Councillor Ward 1, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Councillor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thank you. I am. So, Maureen, what's different with this year than last year? What does this What does this give you? Well, as you uh, described it, this is a, a nuisance party bylaw. A number of municipalities have one like it. Uh, London, 
St. Catharines, Guelph, uh, Waterloo. It is for large unsanctioned events. So the one you referenced was at Fake Homecoming in October of 2021, in which there were 5,000 young people who um, uh, took over a neighborhood in Ainsley Wood, which is in the west part of Hamilton. And as a consequence, uh, the residents of that neighborhood were not uh, able to move in or out. And what a nuisance party bylaw, it gives just another tool in the toolbox uh, for um, the Hamilton Police Service working in conjunction with the city's own bylaw enforcement um, to assess the situation, uh, to lay fines, uh, to clear the area, and also to lay fines in such a way which we're seeking to be a little bit recoverable so that it serves as a deterrent. So there's 11 criteria that are set out, um, including urination, defecation, uh, being on rooftops, destroying and vandalizing private property and public property. Um, if four, I think, of the 11 are, are met, uh, then the chief of police or his or her delegate, um, designate, I beg your pardon, can declare um, it in keeping with the bylaw um, and it can be applied. So, um, sorry, go ahead. No, keep going, Maureen. Keep going. Yeah, the second part of it, the direction that was given today at committee was to request that the mayor and the city manager begin engagement with McMaster University uh, so that they actually um, can pony up and help with uh, the residents of of Hamilton in in paying for this. a public safety coordinating committee has been meeting since January uh, in preparation for St. Patrick's Day for a single day. The Hamilton uh, taxpayers were, have been on the hook for about a quarter of a million dollars for that. So um, we're hopeful that uh, the university will seek uh, and rise to its responsibility as Queen's University did. They have put in $300,000, a hundred uh 100000 per year for three years. Uh, obviously, uh, the city looking for everybody to be more accountable for their actions here. Uh, that being said, I mean, anything, any of the things that you just described, Maureen, whether you're, you know, doing this, urinating here or, or destroying whatever, is there not enough before this bylaw to say, hey, you know, you can't do that and you're under arrest? Uh, again, what's different with the bylaw as opposed to, you know, anyone else doing any one of those other activities you just talked about? Well, the the staff um, did a considerable sweep of best practices. There were some municipalities that did uh, amend their existing bylaws um, mm-hmm. to try and respond to these unsanctioned events. And there were some uh, that had a standalone bylaw. And after that review, uh, staff were of the opinion that the evidence pointed in having a standalone bylaw because it it enables them to put all of these uh, 11 activities um, clearly identified, clearly into one easy bylaw, and also will allow them to move forward in consultation with uh, the Ministry of Solicitor General, I think, in trying to increase the fines um, to mm. get some of the money back. So where's the university? So where is the university on this stuff? Are, like, are they, hey, not our problem, not our property, or are, are they interested in engaging in this in this discussion? Well, the university has been serving on that public safety uh, committee that has been meeting very regularly mm-hmm. since January, since post uh, last October's event. Um, so they're they're aware of uh, 
the impact that that had, uh, particularly in West Hamilton and Ainsley Wood. Uh, I was there uh, on the day uh, of, and I returned uh, to the neighborhood the next day and tried to knock on as many doors as possible. I met with the senior leadership of McMaster and shared with them what I experienced and what was conveyed to me uh, from those residents and asked them to meet with the residents. So they subsequently held a public meeting. So they are aware of the impact that this had on a, on residents, uh, an elderly woman hiding under her bed the entire weekend um, because her, her neighborhood was cordoned off and uh, she didn't know what was going on. She wasn't aware that the police were around the corner. Um, she was very fearful and she reached out to her daughter who lived outside of Hamilton who then subsequently contacted me and I went to visit the elderly woman uh, mm. the next day. So it's not good stuff. I, uh, this could be good timing considering uh, things are sor- uh, sort of back to normal or whatever the new normal is. It's been two and a half years that a lot of this stuff uh, has been sidelined. Are you expecting any more as a result of that? Well, this is this is not a silver bullet, and um, it's yeah. been one, one tool. It is, um, I've always said to students who move into Ward 1 particularly, uh, as, as long as they're living here, uh, they're a resident, and I am accountable to them for their health and safety, but with their rights as a resident also comes responsibilities. And so you don't treat Ward 1 as your litter box, or your frat house, um, you got to grow up and act like the adult and the privileged adult, which you, you are. Um, so there is a rise across particularly university towns. Um, Kingston, for example, has been a leader on this front, uh, Waterloo. And I don't understand this phenomenon. Um, so uh, I think all university towns are having to grapple with this. Maureen Wilson with us, Councillor Ward 1, City of Hamilton. City of Hamilton uh, looking to implement a nuisance party bylaw around the University of Westdale area as things uh, can get out of hand there and another uh, tool in the toolbox, as they say. Maureen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Here we go again, talking about uh, Donald Trump. Uh, we remember what happened with uh, the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago. Uh, because uh, Donald was being investigated for allegedly taking documents with him when he left the White House. Uh, now he has asked for a special master to oversee the case into the handling of these materials uh, and whether any of the records were covered by attorney, client, or executive privilege. Brian J. Karam with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com and the Washington Diplomat, and host of the podcast. Just ask the question and the book, Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Revive It. Brian, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. So uh, is this a win for the Donald, getting his special master? And then I'll ask you what exactly a special master does. Special master. I like the song that you played. It's it, <laughs> uh, No, it's not. It's uh, what it is. It's a delay tactic. It's um, 
what will happen is a, a special master is assigned to take a look at stuff and make sure that uh, the things that were seized in the um, raid, or he calls it a raid, in the search of his uh, Mar-a-Lago residence um, are not bound by a t- attorney-client privilege and are um, important to the investigation. If you get some, it, it actually, it will not work to Donald's benefit. It'll, it'll, it'll give him fewer things to gripe about afterwards once he's indicted because he can't say that he didn't have a chance to go through it. So it's a delay tactic. That's all Donald Trump is, is he, he flies by the seat of his pants, tries to keep the, uh, um, you know, people at bay until it, at, at, you know, the last possible moment. And that's all he's doing now. Um, th- this started because people are concerned or that he allegedly took something from the White House. Now, doesn't this spe- a special master, aren't they looking into seeing what's covered by attorney-client privilege? So, in other words, yeah. is he now accusing them of, now you've taken some of my stuff that you shouldn't have had? Well, they, is, is that what this is? Well, yeah, that's part and parcel. D- Donald Trump is uh, great at deflection. Yeah. He's conniving. He's a con artist. And of course, you know, whatever is his, who cares? He'll get it back. However, what is ours is important. Those 43 empty folders of classified information, that stuff is important. And look, he has, they recovered some classified information. So there's no doubt that he had it. There's no doubt that he lied about it. In June, he sent a letter out from his attorney saying, ah, I ain't got anything else. And they knew he was lying. They were man- They managed to confiscate some of that. But the big question is, why did he lie? And what were in those empty folders? And where did it go? So how long does the role of the special master last? Uh, how long does the delay last? Does this have an end date uh, to it? it? How long yeah, does the it, delay it just, last? It will probably be a few weeks. It will take them time to go through the, uh, you know, the... FBI and the DOJ, is, they've already said, you know, there's very little here that's bound by attorney-client privilege, and we've already looked through most of it. So the now the special master will look through. They've told the FBI to stop looking through it until the special master does, and the FBI has probably already gone through all of it, and the special master will go through, and if they're, you know, if it depends on who's appointed. It's There's very few people that can actually fill that role. Um, it has to be someone who is who has top secret clearance, who can look at classified documents, and someone who uh, is aware of protocol. So it's usually a retired judge or prosecutor. And those there are a limited number of people. So he's not gonna, you know, he's not gonna go out and, and hire Randy Quaid to be a special master or, you know. <laughs> now that happen. would be now that would be interesting. Yeah, uh, so, so, so does he decide on who the special master is? Uh, no, the like, judge does. And, okay. and, you know, like I said, it's going to be up from a limited number of people, all of whom are probably well-versed in, uh, you know, the rhetoric and the needs of uh, the federal du- judiciary. And so there's not a whole lot of games that can be played here. This is just how, what can we do to string it out? Hopefully they'll go away. That's oh. Donald Trump. So he's trying to string this out. Any publicity is good publicity for him. What about the case against him? Is there anything more this week than we didn't have or we didn't know last week? Well, I mean, you saw in his speech that he – all right, so what happened was President Biden came out and talked about hope and how, you know, yeah. that it's not all um, all members of the GOP, just the MAGA members of the GOP. And then 
Donald Trump's out preaching hate and fomenting rebellion and screaming and ranting and raving. And uh, so, yeah, what we've seen this week is Donald dig himself a deeper hole. But Don, if the Don gets any deeper, he'll hit the center of the earth and come, you know, shooting out somewhere around <laughs> China. I mean, he's just the guy is just a nut. He's and, a lunatic. And, and what about Biden's speech on especially the Magnus supporters and such? I mean, should he be offering ideas or, or, or still beating this drum? Well, I think Biden has given people an opportunity to uh, reconcile their feelings for Trump with their feelings for their country and given them an opportunity to say, all right, fine, let's put Trump behind us. Because a lot of people want Trump put behind us. The real fear is what's in front of us. There are people that are far worse than Donald Trump. Like, you know, I, I don't want to mention any names, Ron DeSantis, but, and you know, or, or you know, Jim Jordan. I, you know, I really don't want to mention any of those people people marjorie taylor green but uh you know lauren Boebert, uh mitch mcconnell <laughs> but all of these people <laughs> that are still in office are more dangerous to the united states right now and we've got to make sure that uh in the fall this is an inflection point every historian every scholar everyone out there is saying you know the 2022 elections are going to be historic um and i think that they are and i think that there's no way that donald trump emerges from this unscathed, and I don't think there's any way Donald Trump emerges from this without being indicted. Brian J. Coram with us, political analyst for CNN, White House reporter, columnist for Salon.com, and the Washington Diplomat. Always fun, Brian. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, brother. Talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. The Prime Minister is, uh, many have been saying over the last uh, couple of weeks, he's uh, out and about a lot. Uh, almost in a campaign mode, uh, making little announcements on uh, this, that, or wherever. Now the PM is on a retreat with his cabinet to talk about um, how they can perhaps move ahead of some of the bad publicity they're getting and they're dropping in the polls. Uh, as a matter of fact, an abacus poll found that uh, if an election would he- were held today, the Conservatives would win by a slight uh, margin, and th- that's without a leader at this point. So what do the Trudeau Liberals need to do to turn this puppy around? Uh, let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and with us now. Nelson, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thank you, Scott. It seems that the Prime Minister is just very much out of touch with what's uh, on the minds of Canadians. Uh, other than health care, of course, um, the top five issues are pretty much all economic, whether it's the high cost of housing, the high cost of uh, fuel, the high cost of groceries, that sort of thing. What's the objective? What are they going to try to do at this retreat? How do they turn this around? Because these don't seem to be issues that are a real top of mind for the Liberals at this point. Well, uh, let me just say that it's sort of standard practice to have a cabinet retreat before Parliament reconvenes. So there's nothing new there. The difference this year from last year is that last year the cabinet retreat, which was held over four separate days, was held virtually Mm -hmm. because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, So this year it's actually happening in person. The other thing about it is that it, it 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 generally moves around the country. I find it interesting that this year it's in British Columbia, and Trudeau has a, sp- sp- a particular affinity for BC. That's where he's worked most of his non-political life as a teacher, as a ski instructor, mm-hmm. and other jobs he's had. And in BC, 
the uh, according to that abacus poll, actually, the uh, the liberals are in third place. But it is a fairly tight three-way race. The liberals are are in third place in all four western provinces. I'm not sure it makes much difference that they're meeting in Vancouver, except I think it throws more light on the housing issue. And apparently, uh, Trudeau is going to make an announcement this evening. The, the retreat formally begins this evening uh, about housing, and I suspect he'll he'll mention BC specifically. Um, but as you say, inflation, issues of economic growth um, are, are the big issues uh, for Canadians. I would say now. I thought the most interesting. Well, this is one of the things that struck me. I, I just read the press release that the Prime Minister's office released on August 31st. That's a week ago, announcing that the cabinet retreat would begin today. It runs through Thursday in Vancouver, and it claimed that well, uh, there had been a complete job recovery since the. Uh, you know, with the pandemic, since the pandemic, because we had all those people that were laid off and getting support from the government. But I thought the most interesting fact came out from a Vancouver-based, admittedly right-wing institute, the Fraser Institute, the other day, which pointed out that virtually all the job gains have been in the public sector, Hmm. and that job growth in the private sector has been 0.4%. It's basically standing still. So uh, that, I thought, was the most interesting economic backdrop to to this uh, meeting happening. Now, specifically, at the meeting, the Liberals are committed, you know, they've made this deal with the NDP uh, to uh, to introducing dental care, uh, beginning with uh, kids under 12 years of age. So that's probably... that legislation is going to be introduced. Uh, there will also be, according to the uh, sources in the Prime Minister's office, talk about uh, the Canada housing benefit, which the NDP is pushing for a slight increase. And this is uh, giving people who are ha- have low incomes yet pay more 30 than 30% of their um, income on rent. Uh, right now, they those that are eligible get support from 300 to 475 dollars a month many are on social assistance this the ndp wants it raised marginally to 500 dollars a month well that's more or less what inflation has been um you're going to hear a lot of talk about housing and the and the government talks about uh, spending four billion dollars uh, on it, on, on this program, but actually that's over eight years, and that comes out to just a half, a $500 million a year. It sounds like a lot, but remember how many people we have in the country and what the housing and rental situation is. Exactly. I mean, are they taking a big enough swing at this? Because we've heard announcements all week. He was in Kitchener talking about, you know, I think it was seventeen or 14,000 more built across the country. Uh, he was talking about rent-to-own options. These target a very, very small segment of the population. Uh, the rent-to-own, I mean, it's, it's usually more, and, I, and I've talked to companies that are doing this, uh, that have said this is not 
want a solution to the housing crisis. This is to help people who can't get credit to get into a home. That's not the problem here. The problem is people can get a mortgage. You just ain't big enough. So is he taking a big enough swing at this instead of, you know, trying to, to cater to the one or two or three or five percent of the population who this is? I mean, it sounds good, but it really doesn't help the average Canadian. Well, you you can't help everybody. I mean, uh, the um, uh, the government is is not a big bank. It's not. Uh, it, it really spent a lot on the uh, on measures to mitigate the pandemic in terms of employment support. For but let, let's talk about things like Nelson. Though, um, you know, is there any? Is it possible to get some relief on the carbon tax? Uh, is it is it possible tax. is it possible to sell more liquid natural gas to try to to try to get us going? Okay, let's let's talk about both of those. With respect to the carbon tax, it's loose change compared to the increase in the price of energy. The, uh, lowering, for example, what uh, Doug Ford has done in Ontario, giving you like what five cents uh, on a liter of gas, is a joke. When you pay, as I did in June, two dollars and twenty cents right here in Toronto. Now it's dropped down to a dollar sixty a liter. Well, that's a yeah, but you know you can call you can you can call it a joke, Nelson. But nobody's going to put their hand in their pocket. They're going to hold it out. Well, exactly, and there are just too many hands. You can't you can't satisfy everybody on everything. The government is not going to provide. Uh, like you referred to housing. The one area where I think the government could do more is have more support for social housing, something that they uh, were more aggressive about in the, between the 70s and 90s than they have in the last 20 years. But most of the incentives have either been minor support to people like this Canada housing um, uh, benefit or... Um, you know, largely for developers. And and remember, housing is under provincial jurisdiction. So the big blocks to housing, well, I'll make two points, are, uh, are zoning problems, yeah. uh, where you've got lo- municipalities, local politicians, you know, it's NIMBYs, not in my backyard, do they want higher buildings. Mm-hmm. And the other bigger factor, which the government doesn't control, is the Bank of Canada rate. Interest rates are going up tomorrow. That is going to way overshadow what's going on at this meeting in Vancouver. What they're really doing in Vancouver is talking about they want to come out like a coordinated team. They want all the ministers having the same sort of line, attack lines on the conservatives or or positive spin on their own policies. Those are the kinds of things that they're going to talk about and also... Um, the prime minister is going to get an earful about what ministers and other MPs, although they won't be there, heard from their constituents. Mm. Uh, things, everything from air travel and the chaos at airports to uh, to the challenge of getting passports, because MPs, that's most, the, the, the biggest job their constituency constituency offices do is help people with immigration and now passports. So those are things that um, uh, they've also got to be concerned about. Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, Prime Minister and Liberals on a retreat right now in Vancouver. Nelson, thanks for the time. Be well. 
Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Canada's healthcare system is in a crisis. I think we all knew that. I think we know that now uh, coming out of a global a pandemic or where we are in this global pandemic. We've talked about how uh, obviously it has exposed the weak links. And although uh, we have a universal health care system, it is um, it is riddled with with uh, inconsistencies and problems that need to be addressed. Uh, and now that uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is largely behind us or we're at this new phase of where we are, uh, a lot of people are trying to figure out what the heck we do to fix all of this. And as soon as you talk about uh, leaning towards private facilities to ease the pressure on public hospitals, people just, they blow up, their hair goes on fire, and all of a sudden there's this massive uh, debate uh, on the extremes about whether we should have a wholly public or private or whatever health care system, whereas this already goes on in Canada as, uh, you know, many facilities uh, help help the Canadian system move forward. That doesn't mean you are charged uh, with your credit card, per se. Uh, how do we move forward with all of this? Let's bring in Brian Day, Medical Director of Canby Surgery Centre in Vancouver uh, and past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Dr. Brian Day's private clinic has been up and running since June of 96 and has long been advocating for a parallel uh, private system in the province. Brian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm well. Thanks. Thanks for how- having me. How do we open a discussion about changing the system, Brian, when nobody wants to change? Well, you know, there's a myth out there that nobody wants to change, you know, but in 2018, a Trans-Canada poll showed that uh, 76% of Canadians want the option for private health insurance. Uh, of course, two, 70% already have um, insurance privately. We call it extended health for, for things that other countries with universal health systems already cover, like prescription drugs and ambulances and physio and dentistry. So we are, we are the worst ranked of the top of 10 universal systems. And, uh, you know, I like to use the analogy, if you, if you were in a league with 10 hockey teams or 10 soccer teams and you were bottom, wouldn't you be looking at what the top two or three are doing, when you're, especially when you're spending more than any of the, any of the others on your, on your team? And that's the situation we find ourselves in in Canada. When I came to Canada in the 70s, a long time ago, we were fourth in the world in the number of doctors per population. Today we rank 69th, and that's because governments cut back on medical schools. And they, they had this theory that nurses and doctors cause the rising costs because they treat too many people. And let's cut, close nursing schools, let's close hospitals, and let's cut back on medical schools. So governments created this crisis and i'm not sure they have the 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 ability to fix it uh that doesn't help my next question which is how do we fix this you've seemed to have found the balance here Uh, how do we move forward with this because i think a lot of people have come to the conclusion we can't go backwards so i think there are three things that need to be done and number one we need to um to um eliminate block funding of our hospitals where they're given an annual so uh, the Vancouver General Hospital for instance gets two billion dollars a year every patient that goes there is using up their revenue whether they go to the emergency department or to for a hospital operation 
um, in in other countries in the OECD, they assign even their public system assigns funds when you go. So if you go to a public hospital in the NHS in England, the hospital gets revenue from the from the NHS. Therefore, hospitals in in other countries in the OECD want patients. Our yeah. system is geared so that patients use up the revenue they've already received at the beginning of the fiscal year. It's a bizarre form of funding. The second thing is we need to have a care guarantee so that, again, as in other countries and Quebec's uh, kind of looking, or they may have just recently introduced this, that is where if you're waiting longer than 18 weeks um, in England, it's 18 weeks from the time of referral by your family doctor for a procedure, then the government will is required to pay for you to go to another jurisdiction, public or private, even another country, and 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 have it done. They guarantee um, you know access, and um, and then the third one is Canada is the only country on the planet where private health insurance is unlawful. Uh, but it's not unlawful, as I said, for dentistry and ambulances and artificial limbs and physio and drugs and things that are all essential in other countries. We we need to have the ability to um, hold the public system accountable by allowing um, some competition. I don't know a single monopoly in society that serves the consumer well, and um, healthcare is no, no, no exception. Last year, 11,500 Canadians died on wait lists in Canada, that, and they were legally prevented from doing anything about it. This is, I mean, this is atro- uh, that's atrocious. Brian Day with us, Medical Director of Canby Surgery Centre in Vancouver, past President of the Canadian Medical Association, trying to fix the Canadian healthcare system in crisis right now, but obviously new thinking, new vision is needed. Brian, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Seem to be a little uh, spring in the step this September, uh, perhaps more so than the last couple of years as uh, things slowly go back to or whatever the new normal is. Uh, but certainly uh, a lot of uh, happy kids, uh, whether the university students or high school students or elementary or what have you uh, today. My kid just came through the door with his football helmet in his hand. So I was like, wow, that's great to see. Uh, so things so far so good, but a lot of people or some people are still upset that there isn't more protocol in place. But really, you've got to be aware of where this virus is right now. And we are just in a completely different place than we were uh, this time last year or certainly this time two years ago. Let's bring in on Ontario's Education Minister, Stephen Lecce. He is with us now. Stephen, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks so much, Scott. It's good to be back. Uh, busy day for you, I'm sure, as uh, you're doing the rounds. Still, I'm hearing, uh, you know, the odd clips of the odd parent uh, upset or the odd politician upset that there aren't protocols or whatever in place that there have been for the last couple of years. What can you do to reassure parents and what have you that uh, schools are safe and, and we've just evolved into a different place now? You know, I, I've heard from the vast majority of families out there. They are excited. They're elated. And frankly, we're all proud of these kids. It's been two tough years and we owe it to them to keep them in school in a more normal, yes, more stable and frankly, a heck of a lot more enjoyable, Uh, you know, letting these kids play sports, extracurriculars, clubs, art, music, these things matter. And we believe that firmly. You know, I'd say to parents, it always the first day, you know, everyone's a little nervous. 
but these kids are going to go where they deserve to be. The Chief Medical Officer of Health, the Children's Health Coalition, sick kids, I mean, major medical leaders, pediatric, listen, you know, we talk about listen to the science. We are. And they're telling us they got to go back. They got to stay in school. They got to get back to the full learning experience and nothing should interrupt their, their, their experience as well. And I believe so strongly in that. And so I just want families to know uh, we are going to fight to make sure kids stay in school and benefit all year without interruption to the full learning experience. And we're simply not in the same place that we were in the past. No, I mean, the world has fundamentally changed the percentage of immunization, antivirals, uh, as well as additional capacity in our healthcare system. I mean, we are so much better off than we were. You know, we've got 90 plus percent of kids in high school double vaccinated, for example, almost 95%. I mean, we're in a different world. Yes, it doesn't mean we need to, you know, it requires still to be cautious, I think. And that's important. And that's a takeaway I'm still sharing with families, you know. You got to screen your kids before they go to school. That's a requirement. You know, if they have to stay home, if they have any symptoms of COVID or frankly, if they're sick at all, we now have, we've been providing rapid tests, uh, as you know, last year, and we're continuing them this year. Your kid has symptoms. You want to know if it's COVID or not, take a free rapid test or send them home to your kids. Um, and we space them out where they get to do two tests to confirm uh, if they have COVID. In addition, you know, we've enhanced the cleaning of our schools. We've hired 5,000 more staff this year alone, including uh, hundreds of more custodians to make sure that these spaces are in a good place. And the ventilation is something I just want to conclude with. Nothing matters more right now to stopping this airborne virus is making sure the air quality is strong and the filtration investments we put in place, 100,000 HEPA units, $600 million. Every school in the province, every single one in Hamilton, Halton, right across the province has been improved with the highest quality filters. And we've spent $600 million to build modern ventilation systems for the schools that didn't have them. So I feel like we've done a lot. We followed the advice of the chief medical officer of health. And I think that sometimes when I hear the unions say that, uh, or, you know, some of the opposition parties, I often say like, what about the kids' mental health, their academic health? I mean, we've got to find an element of, um, you know, uh, responsibility where we're not cherry picking, but we embrace the best medical advice of the chief medical officer of health And we move forward with it. There's always been aversion to change. I've noticed this every time we've done something, we've added or taken away something. You know, look, uh, we have a responsibility to kids. It's to keep them in the most normal setting possible. And I think morally, more than anything else, it's what's motivating the government just to give these kids the ability to be kids, to play with their friends, to see their educators, to smile again. And I think that matters to a lot of parents out there, too. Uh, what about uh, contract negotiations? There's some chatter in the media uh, last few couple of weeks uh, about some rumbling going on. The good news is we haven't heard much about that, which is probably a good thing. Uh, where are we with those contracts and such in that negotiation? Uh, because we haven't heard anything, or do we assume that things are moving forward? Uh, well, I think uh, overall, we've been meeting with all of them pretty much. I mean, the unions have been available. Some of the teacher unions were unavailable until September because they were uh, busy this summer. Uh, I can't speak to why uh, they were unavailable. But for those that have been available, yes, we've been having good faith discussions with them. Uh, you know, I do have some concerns that some of them are trying to put themselves in a path to a strike irrespective of what the government does, because we're not going to offer 52 percent, Scott. Uh, as QP wants, a $21 billion demand. That's not in the cards. Let me just assure you of that from a taxpayer perspective. 
52% over three years, and that's being conservative. It's $21 billion in net increases uh, right across the sector. Um, and that's bigger than the combined education budgets of BC, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and Alberta combined. So, I mean, we gotta, we got to be driven by realism. Um, we've offered something realistic. And I do think there's a path to a deal. It just requires us all to put kids first. And when I hear teacher unions talking about strike votes and getting a strong mandate from their members in September and October, that, that frankly uh, uh, concerns me and it angers me because uh, that should not be your priority right now, folks. Like, like you got to see the forest from the trees right now. We're on the first day of school. Your priority should be kids in school, keeping them there. Nothing should compromise that, even if you don't get your way with a multi-billion dollar demand. And I just would hope after decades of this on and off union striking problems for governments of the day, NDP, liberal, conservative, we can finally agree that these kids deserve to stay in school right to June. And I just want to reaffirm to families that, you know, I'm, I'm hearing these things too, but know that we're going to stand up for you. We will ensure your kids stay in school. That is our, our commitment to families and to the staff who I think overwhelmingly want to go and work and just do their job and do it well. Ontario Education Minister Stephen Lecce with us on the first day back and negotiations moving forward. Stephen, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. Obviously, kids heading back to class. Uh, you heard some clips on the news earlier on. Uh, some are still concerned, some very concerned, uh, that protocols are not still in place uh, as uh, we finish off the summer of 2022 and head into um, the, this new school year, which obviously is a lot different than last year or the year before that. Let's bring in Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, family doctor, vaccine researcher, founder of Prime Health Research and a medical columnist and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Many thanks for having me on this warm afternoon. So your thoughts of where we are this September 2022 as compared to the last uh, year or two? I'm a lot more excited. Look, we're the most vaccinated, well, one of the most vaccinated countries in all of the world. But that said, I don't know that it's time yet to put our guard down. You know, so I'm very concerned about what's happening in schools in terms of the masking, you know, in terms of kids being relatively under vaccinated. I mean, consider how many kids out there have three doses. Hmm. Answer, less than 1% especially if you're talking about the under 11 group. Now, fine, we're at one in five who have three doses when it comes to the 12 to 17-year-old group, but we're still vastly under-vaccinated. So you might argue, so say, you know, kids don't wind up in hospitals, so what am I worried about? Well, the fact is they work with other kids right there in school. They study with other kids who could potentially be at high risk. They work with teachers, janitorial staff, administrative staff, all of whom could be higher risk. So that gives me pause. And then you look to the Southern Hemisphere and what's going on there. What do you know? They've had high rates of influenza, the highest they've seen in five years, plus the fact that it came earlier. So I think we have to, we have to be a bit cautious about what we're facing. So does that mean masking yay or nay? That's a yay for sure. It's a yay simply because of all the things that I'm mentioning. They're cheap. They're highly effective. You've got a well-fitted N95 mask. You're going to block four out of five cases. They're that good. 
you know, arguably they're almost better than our vaccines. Do our vaccines have that kind of efficacy? The problem has been repeatedly that even if you do have that third dose, yeah, you've got a 95% protection against hospitalization, which is fantastic. But unfortunately, there's still that lingering Omicron, right? People can still get that disease. And yes, it's milder, but they can still get the disease. And that's a, that's a serious problem. That was my next point, doctor, is, you know, obviously we've seen the protocols drop right the way across the country for the beginning of the school year. There is the odd university here and there that is, is still uh, keeping them mandatory. But the fact that Omicron does spread more, a lot of us have already had it, and it's driven out Delta, and it certainly isn't as volatile as Delta. Um, do we need, you know, are we in the same place? Do we need, or do we need the same protocol that we had two years ago? I think the best we can do is embrace all of the imperfectly moving parts. Masks, are they perfect? No, they're not, but they're pretty darn good. You know, social distancing, well, that's kind of gone the way of the dodo. Who even talks about that? But it's still actually a thing. You know, um, we want to stay home if we're sick. Yes, COVID is airborne, so we have to think about the filtration systems we have in our schools. Are we optimizing them? You know, we don't see a lot of transparency on the exact number of schools and children in Ontario who have optimal, suboptimal filtration systems in their school. So, like, can we do better? The answer is always yes. I think we can do a lot better when it comes to the masking because we're going into this and we really don't know quite what's around the corner. So I think it would have made sense to be a little more cautious uh we're not seeing a lot of uh of of uh cases where it, it is like it was a couple of years ago how much of that is a factor in the sense that the majority of us are vaccinated um this is a lesser strain again do we need the same level of protocol that we needed say two years ago you know right now you look at the numbers you look at you know across the board things are looking really good So what we're talking about is a preventative measure. And Mm -hmm. like most preventative measures in medicine is we do the many to protect the few. And that's that's true for cancer screening. That's true for the vast majority of vaccination programs out there. When it comes to masking, I look at it as a relatively small ask compared to what's on the other side. Our health systems are already overwhelmed, period. There aren't enough family doctors to go around. And speaking as one, I can share with you, COVID-19 has brought a huge amount of work onto the shoulders of family doctors. The The concentration is always on hospitals. But in fact, if you ask yourself, not to get overly personal, but I am curious, how long does it take to get into your family doctor? Hmm? Yeah. Yeah, that's the that's the whole point. Like what used to be same day appointments now, you know, if it's an urgent problem, I'll see you within the same week. But if it's not such an urgent problem, regular checkup, make sure I'm healthy, which personally, I don't even think we should be doing at this point. But that kind of checkup is on hold for months. And that's the kind of waiting list. And that's if you're lucky enough to have a family doctor. So, you know, let's not delude ourselves. It's not just happening at the level of hospitals. This is happening at the level of primary care, your family doctor. And it also goes down to the labs. You know, it takes longer. It's it's a little more complicated now. The weights are just a bit more for a simple blood test. And never mind, that x-ray and ultrasound you need, guess what? You're going to be waiting a few weeks, sometimes months to get that. 
Average wait times to get into a specialist. Check my work. Now 26 weeks across Canada. It is insanely high. So let's take it seriously. You know, wearing a mask, is it that big a deal? Really? Like we can put these on and we can protect our fellow man, woman, child, you know, to prevent them from getting seriously ill. What are you expecting this fall? You know, it's interesting. I, I'm not such a soothsayer. We look to the Southern Hemisphere to predict influenza. And if you look to Australia, what's happened is they have seen uh, an uptick earlier and the highest number of influenza cases they've had within the past five years. So that is concerning. And, we, you know, people are asking, well, how well matched is the vaccine to the circulating strains? We don't even know. We don't have the vaccines yet. We're only going to know that in retrospect. But one thing we do know is that when, when we had certain pandemic measures in place, it wasn't just COVID-19 numbers that went down. Yeah. The number of cases of influenza went down to a crazy low we've never seen before. So these measures are highly effective and not just at preventing COVID-19, but at preventing influenza. So we're sitting pretty now. I'm happy for that. I'm celebrating it too. I'm thrilled. But I'm worried about what the fall could bring. When people are gathering, when people are in, you know, crowded in indoor spaces, that's where it's transmitted. And again, are most vulnerable because that Omicron, that's the problem. The novel coronavirus in general, it is supremely good at shape shifting. It mutates, and when it does that, when a couple of things happen, it can become much more contagious, which we've seen with Omicron. We could easily see that with another future strain, or it becomes better at escaping existing immunity, which Omicron has. That immunity could be whether it's from vaccination or from having had a natural infection or from mm -hmm. the combination of both. And that's the problem we're facing with the novel coronavirus. So you ask me, well, Dr. Gorfinkel, well, Rabbi Gorfinkel, well, soothsayer of the future, what do you see? And the truth is, I don't know. But I do know enough to say we better be careful while we can. Dr. Iris Goldfinger with us, family doctor, a vaccine researcher, founder of Prime Health Research Medical Columnist. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Many thanks. All of us. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley is with us and, of course, hosts the Scott Radley Show coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, hope you're doing well. Uh, are you excited about back to school? It's like a different time. Of, you know, it's, it's, it's like a new beginning this time of year, whether you got the kids going back or not. Well, we don't. And, uh, you know, it's... Um, yeah, it, it is amazing to me always how somehow... The day of Labor Day or the day before or the day after, instantly the weather turns. It's like yeah. whoever planned the map will study this intently and go, okay, every September the 4th, it is going to immediately turn from being scalding hot to fall. Mm -hmm. It happens yeah. every year. And so, yeah, we're, we're you know what? It, it feels like back to school today. It just felt like it. And, you know, I mean, it's always funny because especially when you're in a university town, you see bed sheets or signs or, or what have you, uh, a new nuisance uh, bylaw coming into effect to help, uh, hopefully, big parties in Westdale and such. Do you think this is going to make a difference? No. I mean, they'll try to. But, um, Scott, do we not have bylaws or Provincial Offenses Act rules for every single thing that's covered in this new bylaw? 
I thought that, and that was the message that I, I portrayed to the counselor. But yeah, I, I don't know what new is new there that we didn't this is already like, have. This is like every year in, say, football or hockey or whatever. They say, all right, this year we're going to put in a new rule to stop uh, this in hockey. And it's like, well, wait a second. If you just called the penalties that you've had on the book yeah. since the start, it's tripping is tripping. Hooking is hooking. You don't need to come up with a new name and some new rule that encapsulates the rule that already exists. Call the rule as written. I, I, I fail to understand how this will. Ch- I mean, as I say, next year, they'll say, well, we're enforcing the new nuisance bylaw. The other part of the part of it that really I, I want to hear more about, we're got. Uh, Councillor John Paul Danko coming on to talk about this after the break in a little bit is one of the things it says is there's a preemptive element to this. Hmm. So if they think that maybe something is going to happen, they can put in a preemptive thing. I'm a little, I'm growing honestly a little weary of governments giving themselves more preemptive powers for things that I don't know that are really necessary. I, I think we should be trying. I mean, I know some people disagree and say, well, you're just being, you know, anti-government. No, I just, I just don't love the idea that we continue to give governments at all levels more and more and more powers for things that may happen. Um, and I would think that considering and having a university age kid uh, and what they've missed out on in the last couple of years, uh, that this year it's probably going to be a little bit more rambunctious, wouldn't you say? Could be. But I'll throw another question out there. So in the story that um, Nicole O'Reilly wrote in the spec today, you can see it at the spec.com. Excellent story encapsulating all this stuff about what's going on with this bylaw. The spokesperson for McMaster rather proudly sounding says, well, we haven't had homecoming uh, at our school since I think it was 2019. Why not? Well, like, why not have an official homecoming? And then this stuff doesn't all spill out into yeah, the community. Yeah. Yeah. And and I know that in the past, like they've they've moved the football game off of the weekend. They dub homecoming. They actually put the homecoming football game on reading week, yeah. which was a, what's the point of that? Now, no one's around like why? And again, I, I'm not saying go with complete anarchy and like have the university just roll out a truckload of kegs of beer into the middle of a field and say, get blasted. I'm not saying that. But I, I do think that when kids are going to university, surely we can give them some opportunities to do what kids at university do. Otherwise, you end up with what happens happening, where they say, well, we're not doing it here because we can't. All right, we'll find somewhere else to do it. I think I think Mac has to rethink its approach to this as well and say we have to provide our students with something they really want in a safe, orderly way. Uh, just just not doing it, it doesn't make it go away. It just moves it elsewhere. Can't let you go without asking you your thoughts on the Labor Day Classic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that... Um, Apparently, because you know, everybody makes the playoffs, you really don't have to do that good during a regular season. Well, I'll put it this way. It doesn't Will, matter if there's butts in the seats or not. Will, who was on your board handling, operating, uh, doing the show and everything else, Will does an amazing job, but he should be have his wrist slapped for playing that song coming in. The Ticats humming... The Thai cats were barely conscious yesterday. The Thai, that was a perform. That was that was arguably the worst Labor Day performance most people can remember. That was just it was it was horrible. And it's your it's your arch rivals. It's what many people around here consider the biggest game of the year. It certainly is the biggest game of the year up to this point because of their position in the standings, and they looked awful. They looked horrible. And I'll say this, and I know this will be 
unpopular with some people. The Ticats at this point, if they make it into the playoffs and they are, despite the fact that they're three and nine, amazingly, they are still very much in the mix to make the playoffs. If the Ticats make it into the playoffs this year, the CFL should have a royal commission to figure out what the heck is going on with our league that a team this bad could possibly get into our postseason. That would be disgraceful to the league. Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. As always, Scott, thanks a ton. Have a great show tonight. You as well. Talk to you soon, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciate it. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer to have the last word. Good evening. It's Richard. Public service announcement. Pay attention to the school zone signs. Slow down. Those kids can't look up from the TikToks long enough to see you coming.